getting us started. All right, Jim, we're into season 10 of Mention and Dispatches. This is no. now longer than any previous podcast we've ever worked on. I, I don't need to make, you don't need to make me feel any older than I already do. Dear God, man. <laughs> uh, all right, that said, challenge accepted. I was looking for something today that we had covered in one of our old Dragon Up the Past uh, videos. I think it was something squad leader related because Gary was talking about some squad leader stuff on his stream last night and I was looking something up and, uh, and I was thinking, one, we need to bring this the show back because it was a crap ton of fun, like sitting there listening to, to when we'd done the show. We need to bring it back because it was a ton of fun. We need way better audio than we had back then because we sounded like we were yelling through 10 cans. Um, <laughs> we also need a wider variety and array of magazines to work on than just Dragon because if you think about it, like there's the PDF copies out there of the old Space Gamers, of Ares, of Command the general there's a bunch of like shadis magazine is now old enough that like if it were a kid it would be on its second job out of college so <laughs> there's enough of these that we could we could dig into for a while bring in some extra hosts whatever um i think it would be a ton of fun to go back to and i'm saying that without thinking about how much production and editing work i have to do on those videos so <laughs> the third voice that you're about to hear on our podcast tonight uh, we have with us a special guest mr cole Worley from Worley gig games and uh among other places cole i know the list of places you've designed for is not short what else is there besides Worley gig well i my i guess my day job is at leader games so i always have to like you know sort of like being introduced to a friend at a wedding or something like which name are you gonna list first so <laughs> here here in, in, among friends we can list Worley gig first but i i work at leader games uh that, that's my, my full-time job and um, i serve as the creative director there and then I've published with Sierra Madre Games. I've done uh, development work lots of different places. Uh, lots of mentorship as well. Worked on all kinds of games. Yeah, the, the Whirly Gig one always sticks out because it's the play on your last name. So that's, right. that's why that's the one that I always default to. We were tricking people how to, into how, learning how to pronounce our last name. <laughs> it's, worked, it's, worked, it's worked pretty well. It it did work. It did, in fact, work. Cole, with you here talking leader games or, or any of those, what, are, are you allowed to tell us what the next game in the pipeline is coming from the, the mind of Cole Worley? Yeah, I mean, I can I can tell you what I work on. I'm not I'm not very secretive about my d design practice. Um, so like right right now, I'm I am working on ARCs and ARCs is the product I've worked on. I mean, it, it's up there with John Company. I, I think it's I, I, I think it's the longest active studio project at Leader Games. We are well, I when I'm working on a game i usually have a design journal uh which i write in kind of every day it's just a diary really of what i'm what i'm doing and this is the first one where i've had to like really uh put put years on the dates because normally I <laughs> months but i'm like oh which which of the three februaries is this that i'm <laughs> that i'm working in uh so that that's going to take a few more months to finish up um and then after that there's more oath stuff that i that has been preoccupying me uh and then in in the world of historical games uh i'm working on infamous traffic and then really a lot of my time for whirligig is shepherding this little flock of new designs through the publication process and so uh drew and i have been working on I mean, kind of half a dozen designs, uh, most of which I can talk about uh, there. I mean, and, and they, they really run run the, the, the gamut. Uh, for instance, you know, we're, of course, working on the new uh, edition of Infamous Traffic. We have a game about um, letter writing and matchmaking in Regency England that we're really excited about. We're working on a game about uh, queer culture in the 1720s uh, with a designer out of England named Joe Joe Kelly, who's just fabulous, and, oh, just a wonderful designer. And then... Um, We've also uh, been helping this amazing team based in Singapore work on a game about the colonial history of Singapore, um, which which is called right now 1918 or uh, 1819 Singapore, which is a bad title because people are going to ask me when the fours rust. Um, 
and, and that that is uh, that isn't the question I want anyone to ask me because the, the, the game is 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 so brilliant. Um, and it, it really is it, it it's it's quite similar to a kind of PAX style game, except it's a city builder and it is. Uh, I mean, it's really you do get a sense of the history of Singapore when you play the game, uh, and so yeah, we're working we're working on a whole a whole lot of stuff. And then I have I have a few other projects. I've been noodling on this dang project about reconstruction for years now, and it is still not quite right. But it's you know it's just just something that, that I'm cooking on. It, it takes me a long time to make these games. Yeah, yeah, um, Jim. This is the point at which you get to make an Orange Crush joke. So it, it, well, um, yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what my friend refers to is the fact that uh, he is intimately familiar with noodling on a game for uh, roughly the lifetime of his children and likely his children's children. To, to the point where it is overcome by current events. I started in 2007 working on a design that was was a, a a modern kinetic combat game because again like we're war gamers here that's that's sure, what we sure. do but i was i was working on a, a modern kinetic combat something and i was i was sort of looking around for okay so where are the next couple of flashpoints and this was a year and a half to two years before gmt's next war series started showing up okay. so I was actually ahead of them a little bit. Uh, they just, because they're GMT and they have their shit together, they got right. a decade and a half and counting before I got around to mine. Um, but but I postulated a hypothetical near future war in Ukraine based on a fragmented government from protests around a disputed election and the Russians decide to show up <laughs> the Russian minority. And, uh, and and this was 2007 when I was kicking that around. Sure, all right. And, and, and so 2014 shows up and suddenly, you know, I've got like foreign policy magazine calling me going, hey, are you ever going to get around to publishing that thing? Jesus, guys, come on. <laughs> I finished designing it first. And of course, now it's completely overcome by current events because the order of battle is jacked. Where the, the action takes place in the game is like 500 miles west of where everything's actually happening in Ukraine these days. Um, the scale is hopelessly small for trying to encompass the entire Ukraine conflict. Now mm-hmm. you need like six games to do what I was trying to do. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I lived long enough to see my hypothetical near future now become recent history. <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I, there's a, there's a Drew, my brother and I are big uh, admirers of Robert Caro's work. And we read over the summer, we read his memoir and this is the biographer who, you know, so we'll spend 10, 15 years working on the next volume in his yep. epic biography of lbj and there's a moment in his memoir where he talks about i think it's after the power broker was published so he finally had like a little bit of money and he came to an arrangement with his publisher that basically said spend you know you want a pulitzer why don't you just spend as much time as you need and so he goes to this like special reading writing room in the new york branch of the public library and um or one of the branches of the new york public library and in this room he's just surrounded by all these historians who are working on these books and, you know, they're telling stories about like, oh, yeah, they like spent a decade on that book and a couple decades on this one. And he was like, oh, so I'm not slow. I'm just working on a type of thing that takes a long time. Yeah. And, and this is I, I think about this all the time, especially in the hobby market. Because this is a big difference between the more historical gaming and the hobby market. In historical gaming, I find people who they're really embarking on their life's work and you, you can see it. They're like, OK, they have been cooking on this game for a long time. And in the hobby market, there tends to be, but by this, I mean, you know, the more the the mainstream walking around the halls of Gen Con, Mm -hmm. flavor of the month stuff, what what you're getting there is folks who 
we're interested in trying to get a game published, trying to maybe make a career or, or if it, it not really make a career, it doesn't have to be that mercenary. It, sometimes it's just they, they want to know what it is to make a game. And so, you know, the turnaround time there is like two years or one year, yeah. which is just yeah. nothing. And, and, and that's something that, you know, I, um, I had the good fortune to spend, I've had a, the good fortune to spend, spend, spend a little time with, with Mark Herman over the past few years when I go to uh, Historicon in San Diego. And one of the things I'm always uh, just so impressed uh, by him for many reasons, but, but one of the things I, I told, I, t- I was telling Drew when we were walking back to our hotel one night is, you know, in the hobby game market, anyone who's clever can pretty quickly sit at the grownups table. Like I, you know, some, a, a new designer who's only been working for a couple of years can probably design as well as I can design. But when I, when I, when I talk to war gamers and especially war game designers, they're like 20 or 30 years ahead of me. They've just read hundreds of more books than I have on the subject. And it is wonderful because it reminds me of the, the university and it just reminds you of like how how deep someone can go into a subject uh and i and i i just get completely you know entranced by it because i i love i love the fact that there, there's a part of this of the of, of this uh of this whole hobby that we're in where you can where that that level of expertise can be reflected in the quality of the work which isn't to say that like you know a a, a game that um might show up at like Renegade or something isn't isn't brilliant. It's just it is reflecting a different kind of expertise. There's so so much. I'm gonna I'll say this right at the start, and this is not this is not fanboy stuff. It's just true. You are the only hobby designer that I let creep into my historical war games. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Thanks. And that has been true since John Company One, which is the what which blew my head apart. Um, but. And I don't think I'm going to let you walk away from that statement that easily. One of the things, and this is not, I I wrote down seven questions and this isn't one of them. So I'm kind of mad at myself, but (laughs) based on what you just said, based on what you just said, the gaming space in the past 15 years has changed radically. We were, you know, if you walked around Gen Con, which I've been, which I haven't gone to in a while, but I was, when it was here in Milwaukee, I went and we're talking decades and decades ago, games didn't look like they do now. They were, you know, yes, you had your, you had your, uh, your Hasbro games, funny enough. Sure. You, you had your Milton Bradley and Parker brothers. I still remember the guy trying to sell battle masters at Gen Con who looked like a, a washing machine salesman. You know, he was, he was my age wearing a tacky suit, trying to talk to us nerds about, Hey, come play with these GW miniatures. It's a game you'll like kids. And it comes with this hose expansion. Um, but all that having been said, it has changed so dramatically. This the hobby space has exploded in a way that's actually kind of absurd to me. Um, oh yes, it, it, it is. I, it's it, well, and I say absurd in the classical sense, which is to say I have a hard time processing it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that has done is opened up this horrible debate, which I have no intention of relitigating tonight, which is what is a war game. But what that has done, and when you said, by the way, Historicon, you freaked me out. I'm like, what are you doing hanging out in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, moving lead? Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. SD Histcon. SD Histcon. Yeah. Harold's gig. And, you know, which which I'll, I'll hail hail to that, too. What that has done and what Harold is doing is trying to say, hey, let's take this hobby space stuff and drag it over here into this groggy space. And maybe some of you crusty old bastards can figure something out and maybe show more accessible ways of approaching not just war games, but other forms of conflict simulation. All this by lengthy prologue to... 
you 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 share justly, I think, your respect for the passion that a lot of the grogs bring to their games. I'm thinking of Patrick Mullen and his long dry summer, you know, his hot dry summer on Vietnam, which is just it's clearly a labor of his heart. And he and then he's done it for so long and he's worked it for so long. But surely you can't do a game like John Company and make it feel as right as it does without a pretty profound level of historical research. It would ring false otherwise, it seems to me. Oh, I mean, and, and John Company is the product of a lot of work. I mean, I started working on that game uh, back in 2009, and it, 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 working on it in particular because I couldn't secure a copy of Republic of Rome, which is the game <laughs> I wanted to play. Because I, 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 I was so interested in the idea of using a conflict simulation framework to do institutional history rather than military history. Yes. And if, at that period, if you were hunting for a copy of Republic of Rome, you'd go to eBay and they'd all be $150. And I I was literally like barely able to fill up my gas tank. We were so broke. Um, and, and so I, I was just sort of like sketching out. I mean, the, the origins of my, I think a lot, like a lot of people, I wanted to make a game. I just wanted to play it. I didn't, I, I didn't care about selling the game. That was purely secondary. And then that led me to actually saying, well, I don't really know enough to make the game. So I'm going to start reading about it and build from there. But I have, I mean, there's, I have a weird relationship to the, uh, the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to call it the, the the industry because that's what 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 I, what I call it. But but I, I don't mean to like give it any special place. It's just the industry I work in, um, because I I really feel like an interloper. I straight stumbled into this whole career that I'm that I'm currently in, and there are a lot of reasons why it why it happened. But when when I go to when I'm at Gen Con, I, I go to a dinner with other designers at some of the companies in our in our little market segment. I don't really have that much in common with them. We we want really different things, and w- when I go spend time in San Diego with with the GMT developers, I feel like kindred spirits uh, because they are approaching problems with a very similar tact and so i you know when you when you talked about the the hobby 15 years ago um i know precisely what you mean because the first gen con i went to was 2004 i think 2005 oh you sweet summer child i know i know i know well I, i'm i'm i think i'm 36 oh god but, but but i but i but i kind of like I got sort of like weirdly grandfathered. It was my, my first game experience. My, my dad taught me, you know, Risk and Chess Stratego. We played those as, as kids, very young. And then my uncle, when I was probably um, nine or 10, he, he said, I found a bunch of old games in the closet. You can have them. And he, he dropped on my lap uh, hopelessly incomplete copies of Tactics 2, Blitzkrieg, Chancellorsville, um, just beat, beat to hell. Split all the boards, split at the seams, the boxes. You know, I, I remember, um, and it took the this took an embarrassing amount of time to figure out that uh, Chancellorsville didn't have the right pieces. It actually had the pieces from I think Waterloo, maybe or something. And it, it like, it, it, and I like as a kid, I, I don't even know. Like, I, I remember trying to decode. I, I have this visceral memory of me. I think I must have been a fourth grader or something. But I remember trying to figure out how a combat results table worked without really knowing what a ratio was. Oh dear. And, and it was it was mystifying. I looked at this table and I would read the rules. And of course, those old rule books are not going to help you if you don't know. Oh no, they are yeah, the, like, yeah, yeah, no. they are yeah, the exact yeah. opposite of how to learn a game. 
Um, and, and I, I mean, I, I think about it's at school. I, I played in the school library. They, the, the librarian was kind enough to like give us her back closet for a little game group that, that, that I had. And I had found a, a copy of third, uh, Prados's third Reich at a garage sale. And we were playing it. I mean, sort of, I mean, we were just role play. I mean, it was, it was really just nonsense what we were doing, but I remember halfway through the game, somebody figured out how the CRT worked. Again, it's not that complicated of a game, um, but like some element of it. I mean, it, 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 it might not yeah, even but that's, that's just so funny. What happened is it was this revelation that like suddenly I, I went home and I remember taking out tactics two and saying like, oh, I know how this works now. And then I was teaching it to Drew. And I mean, Drew is five years younger than me. So, of course, he's like in first grade. I'm like, no, you put your counters there. You stack up, add our little strength points and then. You figure out the smaller stack, you divide it into the bigger stack. And, you know, I was trying to explain all this to him because it, it was decoding all of these, these dusty old war games. And then, you know, around the same time, I had a friend who, um, who had some older relative who was, who was in the more of the avant-garde of, of essentially the, the German invasion. And so he, for his birthday, would get a copy of Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and, or, or his Princess of Florence. And it was, this is like circa 2003 or 2002, or like right when those games were coming out. Sure. And so I got to, I mean, I, my, my BGG count is about, was dates to about this time. And so I got to sort of like ride a little bit of the way, the hobby wave with a bunch of people who were probably, you know, I was like, you know, the little jerk kid on the forums who was probably 15 years younger <laughs> than anyone else. And in fact, if you go deep into my BGG count, you're going to find all sorts of embarrassing shit that I wrote when I was, you know, a middle schooler, basically. Um it's just been around that long, but 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 wargaming was was the the central kind of foundation for it. I mean, those were the games that like I liked playing. I, I've more recently found myself going back into it a little bit um, and uh, have been, I, I know there's, there's a, lot, a lot, lot to say about that, but but I, I, I understand precisely what you mean when, when you talk about that shift. Because when I started getting into games, um, I remember going into, uh, there wasn't really, there weren't really game stores in, in the part of the, in, in, in Northern Indiana, but, I, but there was a comic book shop that would have like a little shelf of games in the corner. Mm-hmm. And I remember that um, when I was looking through the games, all they had were like three ogre expansions from the late eighties <laughs> and, and, and not knowing what ogre was thinking like, what is this? And it, I mean, they'd clearly just never sold and they were just sitting there. And then, <laughs> and then something, like the ownership changes of the store. You know? Yeah. And they're like, I don't know what this, and actually one of my favorite things to do, and, and you could do this until a couple of years ago, you kind of can't do it anymore, but I love going when I'm in a city to go to like a strange hobby shop, like take me to the model place shop because what you'll probably find in some dark corner is a bunch of weird euros that ownership ordered like in 2001 <laughs> and that never sold and so like i have all these leo colvini games like meridian and uh and i think my, my copy of careless magnus which like i bought at like a model train store for five dollars because they didn't know what it was um and, and so i'm always hunting for those things but but i remember i remember a moment very very precisely where like around 2004 and i mean here like it was it was the second edition of twilight imperium and then those early eagle griffin games mm-hmm. like napoleon in europe the american civil war well he, he was just eagle back then he oh yeah he, glenn, yeah, yeah glenn, exactly. was, glenn hadn't found that griffin yep yeah that, that's right it was just eagle games and I remember buying a copy of Napoleon in Europe and it rocked my world. And the thing is, and I, I actually like a lot of Glenn's work. Um, I think that game is not good. No, it's not at I, all. 
Yeah, and it, I've told, it, I, Glenn is a very good friend, and I've told him so, and I think he knows it. But anyway, yeah, it, it is. It, it well, and I, I actually, it, it is remarkable that that company was as successful as it was for so long, given the quality of the games. And I, I think it has to do with the fact that there wasn't like the kind of design traditions, discourse, superstructure that like makes good designs happen that exists outside of the company. It just wasn't in place. Correct. That's that's exactly right. Because who is going to come? And you know, there was nothing like that. They're just yeah. and, and and there was no external. You know, you'll hear people now say, "Have you taken your design to another developer? Have you talked to them about it? Have you kicked it around?" You can do that now. What was right. Glenn going to do? Who did he have to talk to? But a bunch of crusty old grognards who weren't going to play with plastic toys. Right. Right. Exactly. So there are these like weird unhooked games, and uh, regardless, I've played every scenario. In Napoleon in Europe, every single yeah. scenario, I played the grand campaign. We 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 did the battle boards. I left it set up in my my parents' basement for a month to, to do to do the big scenario, and we all had, we all had a great time at it. Even though the game itself just does, it, it doesn't work, but but that had always been. I mean, the, the the thing the thing that was so remarkable about that game was it was the first game in what felt like. I mean, I can just with historic perspective know like since the Milton Bradley Game Master games that was trying to do uh, like what what we might think of as like the triple a historical game the triple a game board game that says like no this is glitzed out it's got it's got all these it's got this ridiculous painted map um and it it, it was obviously coming after a long drought right yeah they were trying to out fantasy flight fantasy flight at the time yeah but but, but, but even their fantasy flight had hardly started doing yeah this. i was gonna say that predates fantasy flight because, um, I mean, they had, yeah, because like twilight imperium 2 is like pretty ugly yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, in terms of what Fantasy Flight became known for, Glenn was actually ahead of that curve because they weren't at Gen Con when I first got my order. I got the artist, Glenn, when Glenn was selling it at Gen Con, he had a big booth with all these things stacked up. And I remember he, I got my one copy of Napoleon in Europe autographed by both him and the artist. Mm -hmm. And then I bought a second copy because that framed map is still on my wall. Oh, yeah. See, this is I knew I liked you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love because to your point. Yeah. In retrospect, knowing what we do of mechanics and know what we do of all the other things that go into gaming. Yeah. But this was giving me my toys back. Yeah. And then I've told Glenn this. I said, I'll always forgive that game and Civil War and combat and the others because they gave me the joy back. The joy of would you look at this bad MRF -er. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also they he was on the bleeding edge of the market trend, the fragmentation that would make this entire industry possible. I mean, like I know I mean, like in in, in there are many game companies right now. I mean, you know, if we're talking about it crassly, we're just talking about selling selling toys to people with disposable income. But like yes. to, to properly activate the, that that market segment, he was right on the edge of doing that. And of course, uh, you know, w w whenever I hear people bemoan Kickstarter, I always say like Kickstarter is is a branch of the tree. It is just oh, one gosh. other like reflection moment element of a larger trend that's been happening over the last 30 years or even more, really. I mean, I would say about 30 years where it's just a certain class of folks got access to disposable income and there are now places principally, you know, digital places where people can congregate and talk about these things. You get all these communities happening and you see the same trends happen in, you know, my father-in-law is really into like remote controlled sailboats. And they, they also in those communities talk about like, wow, wasn't it crazy when they introduced like forums and then suddenly people could have their own little businesses out of their garage making small kits to, to super fans. And when, when I hear him talk about those things, I'm like, oh, that's a smaller version of what, what's happening in board games. Yeah, it... ah. Ah. Ah.
It's astounding how far ahead of most hobby market trends the war gamers have been over the years. And and that's the thing that you, you talk to some people that are like, oh, yeah, I've been a big board game fan for 20 years. You know, like, that's cute. Um, and it's, it's not an issue of gatekeeping. Part of it is just sort of understanding some historical perspective when people want to start talking about, you know, oh, yeah, Kickstarter really made crowdfunding. Kickstarter didn't start crowdfunding. The war gamers been doing P500 stuff since the late 90s. Right. Kickstarter's founders were in middle school when GMT launched their first P500. And and the idea of campaign games with multiple expansions has been around forever in the wargaming space. Uh, sure. Going back to, you know, Avalon Hill days. And and so there's there's this whole series of things that, you know, people are like, man, folks should start doing this with, you know, with, with uh, different types of board games. There was a column on, on like medium.com, one of the board game publications on there where somebody was talking about, why don't board games have a, you know, a, a common rule set that, you know, learn once and play a bunch. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, did you miss the Carcassonne series of games? But I'm sure. also thinking of like Mark Simonich's 40X series, you know, yep. the advanced squad leader universe, you know, literally every block game ever, ever made by Columbia, they all work on all of those guys work on the same mechanics. Every commands and colors game ever. Yeah. Like if you learn the mechanic, you've got it. The Wargamers have been doing this crap for decades. And it's like, can the rest of y'all like not take credit for the stuff you're ripping off from the Wargamers? You know? Yeah, it, it, it is a funny dy- dynamic. It's so often I feel like, uh, I, you know, we have we have some staff, including some younger younger developers, um, and I I end up like being the person on staff who like pulls out a game that's twenty or thirty or forty years old to say, look, actually this dynamic has already been used here, and it's really important to like to learn that. And it, it's interesting because my, myself and one of our staff at leader Josh Yearsley, who's our rules editor, um, we both kind of come from more of a war gaming background and. And when I when I hang out with him, you know, he, he came to visit. We were working on arcs, and he'll he lives in Massachusetts, but he'll come for a few weeks to do playtesting and things. And uh, we spent our evenings playing South Pacific, um, and all day we were just talking about these, you know, curious, clever, wonderful elements from South Pacific that felt so fresh. And of course, that game system is quite old. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's amazing how, you know, it, 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 uh, so often I, I want to tell folks, you know, p- people always ask me like, oh, what was the most innovative game you saw at PAX Unplugged? And I'm like, well, I haven't seen anything half as innovative as Atlantic Chase. Yeah. <laughs> and they have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, they have no idea. I, mean, I, can... I, I first want to say that my same comment I made about John Company applies to PAX Premier, both of which I adore like a child. Um, that I, I just don't think you're going to, I'm going to let you completely walk away with the idea that those aren't deeply researched, profoundly well-researched games, actually as well-researched in fact, better researched than even some war games I could mention, which I won't bother to <laughs> slag them in the present conversation, which has been very positive. Um, but that having been said, and we're talking about mechanics, we're talking about barring me mechanics. I was reading your, I was poking through your website and I went and I had it. I'm sorry. What moment you're borrowing the tactical chit draw mechanic from empires in arms for arc. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, 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 I, not that, I, not that it's negative. You know, I love that, but I do, sure. I guess what I'm going to say it is explain yourself. Well, and you know, I'll, I'll explain that it didn't work. And, and actually it, it, it was, <laughs> It was it was one of those moments where I so I 
I adore Empires in Arms, and it, it's also a mess. I think that design's a mess, but I also think that it. Oh, it, it, it's a it's a howling mess. Are you kidding? It, but but, but it, it's a mess that like that excites me. And and yeah. th- there's a group here in the Twin Cities that plays it occasionally, and I really want to get in one of their games. Um, uh, but one of the things that I I'm I'm so I think a lot. Uh, so what I'm going to say is going to mean nothing in present company because every historical game designer is going to tell you the same thing, which is that they're preoccupied with questions of scale. Uh, it, 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 you like can't escape it. And in, in the hobby market, when I, if I'm making a game about dragons, no one cares about scale. And so it was funny. I was having a conversation with, 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 with Patrick about a game that he's working on. And I said, your fundamental problem here is, is, is scale. And I was expressing it just as in a wargaming sense. And Patrick's a smart guy. He's played lots of war games, but I felt like at some level, it, what I was saying didn't really resonate because he is so much more interested in story and th- th- the kinds of stories in a, like in a fantasy setting have these kind of telescoping scales where sometimes you're, you know, having second breakfast and sometimes you're leading a, a great host. Mm. Um, and uh where 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 this brings me to to to, to the to the chip pole and empires in arms is i love the chip pole because if you're it's not a chip pole it's the it's the blind bit i love it because if you are trying to imagine the scale at which empires in arms works and how much control like a high command is going to have over a battle well they're going to pick an approach and the other side is going to pick an approach and then they're we're going to resolve and see what happens mm-hmm. and like that to me is like fundamentally true and correct um but so i i tried to put it in arcs because i was like okay arcs maybe has a similar scale i'll i'll i'll, I'll do it that way and uh, i ran into a hilarious problem which is that many times in in conflict games when you um when you go to the, to the moment of conflict resolution um you will have certain rules let's say the, the attacker has you know a, a certain advantage or whatever and then the combat is really just a chore it's it's just a little i mean it's one of the it's it's a, this is a classic moment of wargaming where like the combat rules i find are like always the most boring part of a set of wargaming rules because i'm just going through the chore of the of the designer telling me what they think is best um <laughs> and and, and, and it, all the other stuff around the combat is the stuff i'm really fa- fascinated but like the actual moment of like going through and i'm lear- I'm, I'm relearning right now zucker's operational games uh which, which are so fascinating but his like That's the reason the, you're here <laughs> the 14 step combat resolution in napoleon at bay uh which i do think is, is brilliant in a lot of ways is still like the part of the design that feels so kludgy and i'm like there's got to be a better way but anyway there's all, all this is to say the, the very simple thing that we realized when we were working on arcs was if you have a combat system that rewards skill um what's going to happen is players with weaker armies who are better players are going to win obviously right yeah sure um but they're going to win very consistently uh which is why like if, if you were to have a you know a combat system that was that, that used rock paper scissors let's say and one player was just an ace at reading the other player's mind which of course happens in rock paper scissors all the time um the whole game is going to fall apart because it's going to start feeling unnatural it's going to start feeling wrong for a very small force to route a huge force just because the general was so brilliant and so what, what, what I hit upon, which is something that, you know, uh, a, a lot of work game designers before me have already, already know is you have to assume the basic competency, like up the chain of command. So like the, the enemy, even if you're, you know, a, a smarter, you know, general at a higher level than, than your opponent, the, the guys on the ground know how to load their guns and fire them at each other. And you, so what we, what we found was as we were giving players more control over the combat, if we designed a, um, a sort of blind bid that had a rock, paper, scissors style countering system built in, it produced results that felt 
I mean, anachronistic is a fun, funny word to use in a science fiction game, but it felt wrong. It just felt wrong. And so the the system basically evolved into something where as the attacker, you choose an attack profile. And then you, which is basically in the context of this game, picking different types of dice. You roll those dice. The dice explain how the attack went. But we actually took the, the defender out of the equation because... We just are going, the system assumes the defender always did the appropriate thing. And maybe you got a little bit more lucky or a little bit less lucky, but I can't give the players full control over that, or they're just going to stomp each other into the ground and the game is going to work. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a long answer, but it's a good, so, it's a good example of like me going and pilfering through my old, you know, eighties war games. I, I, I guess I'm a little sorry to see it go. I'd like to. Well, I, I really wanted to make it happen. I tried to make it work in Oath too, and could, I mean, Oath Oath's combat originally oh, was, man. Like, was like a deconstruction of the Dune wheel. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, I got it to work, <laughs> but a funny thing happened, which was that combat was so interesting that it, it just took too long. And I kept getting comments from playtesters saying, "I really like the game. I really like combat, but combat kind of should just be its own game." And so I have this like free floating, like just a combat system without it without a home that uh, I might go somewhere, but. It's hard. I mean, we sit down to make a game like that and you, you have to answer a question like, well, how many combats are there going to be? Okay, well, there's 15 per game. Well, if each one takes six minutes to resolve, then my God, there's not time for anything else. Well, okay, just for the record, there's where we see these big brick walls that sit between the Grogs and the Hobby Gamer. We're sitting there going, well, yeah, of course, it's at least four hours for combat, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Don't be ridiculous. But, but, uh, see, I get a segue out of this, and this is on my list. I realize you're not going to be able to talk about details and everything like this, but just qualitatively... Has Oath sold sold well? Yeah, Oath has done great. Has we, it? Yeah, we, we just got to reorder. There's a funny thing. I think everyone, who, even the people who like Oath, are surprised. Both oh, I do. They, I do yeah, like Oath, sure. and but, I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> and, and, well, it surprises us too. I mean, I so I, I they had to stop inviting me to print run meetings because I'm such a curmudgeon. I always say like, ah, don't print. I don't want us to fill our garages with this game. And um, Oath sold through its first print run instantly, uh, and these are sizable, sizable print runs. And then its second print run it sold through very well and then the third print run uh it's moving through at a reasonable pace it's like not uh, oath is selling um it's like i mean it doesn't sell as well as root i mean but part of the problem is root is on just a very different trajectory and when we put oath next to root it's like well oath looks like a failure but if we put oath next to anything else we've done it's a it's an extremely steady seller and like well, and that's why we're going to support it with expansions i mean people okay and that okay it was that that tripped the question when i was reviewing the website that i saw you're doing an expansion and it was exactly this the comparison that you're talking about that led to my question also which is obviously Root has been this monster for you, this you know unstoppable Leviathan. I'm expecting Root the animated series before very long, but which would be awesome, by the way. Just saying. I can't um, say anything. Shut the front door. <laughs> Cannot confirm or deny. I mean, I, I don't uh, that that would be that would be more spectacular than words I would be in. Anyway, um, I volunteered a voiceover, but the <laughs> the um, but what I really wanted to get at was when Oath came out, we all had Root. We were all having a good time with Root. And all of a sudden, I start going through Oath, going, what the hell? It's a radically different game in some ways. Yeah. Particularly in terms of group commitment and length. And this is something that Brant and I talk about all the time. There are a lot of RPG people. There's even some board game people who look over here at D&D people or at war game people and go, 
your rules are too complicated. Your games are too long. Your games are too complex. And we say, what are you talking about? Look at the game you've built. You haven't heard that, huh? From people who have to sit down with a game like Oath, which is awesome. Well, uh, but as you we, sit down we, and we, play it, you're yeah. like, are you kidding? No, and and we we do certainly hear it, but but there's a thing about I mean oath 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 is funny. So it it and so it and John Company. There's a lot. There's, there's a I mean there, oh boy, I could talk about oath all day. Um, oath oath was um, developed during the pandemic. It's the most important thing to know about oath because we we got the the core design done. We went to Kickstarter. I, I made some adjustments, and then I had some radical ideas about the design. But then suddenly pandemic shut everything down, and so we moved all of our testing to Discord. And it changed everything. The game development has changed more in the past three years from, from how I understand talking to older designers than from the past 30. And it has entirely to do with shifting playtesting to digital spaces, having the onus of kit creation, which used to be a nightmare. I used to try to get my kits, the PDFs ready for the testers on Monday, hoping that they had could assemble one by Friday and knowing that they were going to have a horrible time convincing all their friends to help them cut out cards and to teach them the new rules. And so I, you know, whenever I would make, I would make these Gantt charts kind of with my play testers and, and Root was certainly like this, where I'd say, okay, you're like my wave three play testers. You're kind of good at the end, but I know that it, even a good play testing group isn't going to get more than four or five games and before they burn out. And Oath changed that because now I can push a, ver a, a version on Friday. Well, it did two things. One, um, all of those game groups that that fell apart, it kind of like little electrons. I have these little free radicals. All these people who want to play test, but the, you know they don't want to bum out their groups, are now without groups, and so they could come to our testing Discord and find like-minded people. And then that gets coupled with the fact that creating a a new fresh oath kit is something I do. I, I build the kit. I post it on a Friday afternoon with the patch notes. People are instantly queuing up to get into games. And then Friday night, there's three or four games running. Um, and it has been so exciting. I don't know if, if either of you are, are very involved in the, the the coin discord or the campaign and levy discord that Voco helps run. But those communities, it, that's the exact same trend that, that we saw in our pandemic testing, where suddenly there was just, I had infinite testing bandwidth. I had never had access to so much testing bandwidth, but it also changed the nature of the design. It made the design, uh, instead of us taking oath to every local con and to constantly me teaching it to new players, I was instead just teaching it to people who had played a lot of oath. And so Oath got six times as much testing as Root. And we had people who got into the hundreds of games of Oath. And even after Oath shipped, I noticed that people were still using the testing Discord to gather for games. And I would get messages from folks saying, oh, I'm like, you know, I think the game really opens up like around round 30. I'm like, okay, this is this is different. Because in normally when, when I'm working on a game, um, I think that that I get I get lucky because I, I can tell, I make a bargain. I try to make a bargain with players that says, you might have a rocky first few games but like get to game four get to game five and and i feel so like just privileged i, get, I feel so blessed when, when someone says you know what i i the third game of Pamir is when it really started clicking um because in, in the in the whole hobby market so much of the uh of the, the 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 design practice is oriented towards the good first experience and and sometimes even the good first turn and i say no no, no screw that you're gonna make lots of mistakes 
And what, what I was finding, though, with, with Oath is people saying, like, no, actually, go even farther. Get 10 games in. Get more. And so what, what we found with Oath sales is that we sold very well to the core audience. And then for about half of the core audience, they, they were out. They were like, this is not root. Not really into it. So, 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 so you had a bit of, you had a bit of a, you had a bit of a wave in the, the secondary market, people offloading their Kickstarter copies, people being futzy about it. Um, and then starts finding a bit of a second audience. And now Oath is in a spot where it is like sell, selling very consistently and people who buy that game know exactly what they're getting, which is right, which is right where we want it to be. And I think the, the people who went into Oath expecting like Route 2, they didn't get it. They bounced. And, and where they bounced to, thankfully, was just back to Root because we had an expand coming for them or whatever whatever. Um, and I'm very interested to see how ARCS lands because ARCS is right in between them where I think that it is so much more, it's it, it, in some respects, it's a lot more like root, but in other respects, it's even wilder. And I, I could see it hopefully bringing the, those two groups of people together uh, or pushing them <laughs> further apart. I have no idea. Harold is forever taught. Harold Buchanan, by the way, for sorry, I shouldn't really do that. Sure, Harold. And we all speak of Harold only by his first name. He's like Correct. Madonna and Elvis and Cher. Yes. Um, you know, Harold Buchanan is forever winding on about how he wants to see Wargaming expand. There's no game that has done more of that than Root. There just isn't. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've said, you want to know if you're going to like Distant Plane or if you're going to like any of the coin games, try Root. Mm -hmm. Tell me if you can handle it. And then if you want to add the history into the mix, you're, it's 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 great training wheels, but it's also an astonishingly good game in its own right. Um, to me, what? it's... And, and I just, I wonder how you manage... Do you think about that? Do you think about that crossover? Or are you feeding the hobby market and hoping we grogs just get it because it's good for us? No, it, it, you know, I don't, um, I don't try to make like a hit. I just, I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I, I try to make a game that I would like, you know, it's, it's the old, it's the old simple, simple. You, you realize how many designers right now are cussing at this podcast. If they're even listening to it, they're like, <laughs> I doesn't try to make a hit. He's got three of the best games in the last 20 years. Well, And, and it like, so, I mean, look, there's all there's always going to be a hit every gen con and uh you know the, the game that everyone's that everyone's playing or whatever and i remember the, the year root came out which was really wild i mean actually and I'll, I'll tell you a story about harold i had dinner with harold because harold i mean this was hardly before root had, had root hadn't really come out some of the kickstarter backers had it um but harold uh i think i had talked to harold about, about john company maybe and he invited me to dinner uh the night before gen con 2018 so this is like literally the day before root root comes out and, and we had a very nice dinner with some friends and we went to, went to a bar and, and chatted and um he asked me about about root, roots release and i said look we played a game right before we, we, we shipped the files to the factory and it was a great game it, it um it it it, everyone in you know we were, we were standing up by the end of it we were so engaged um but it was so mean and strange that at the end of the game we all said we have no idea like we we've maybe we've just lost the farm we have no idea people are going to like this game and and, and I, I looked at harold and said look i know some kickstarter backers have gotten it some people like it i don't know how it's going to do tomorrow I, I just i i'm not there's no this isn't coming from false modesty i just don't know but i'm happy it got made the way it got made um and the next day, the line like literally goes out out the door. We're, the, we're in this tiny little stall at the back of the hall. And the line to get the, the copies that we brought with us goes all the way down the hall. Every one of those poor booths was cursing at us because we had our people just snaking, snaking through their booths. And in the evening, of course, Gen Con, especially then, there were no places to actually play games. It's the worst part of Gen Con. Uh, but I'm walking through the hotels and there are always people playing Root on the floor. And what I'm seeing is not... 
dollar signs. I'm not seeing like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like swelling with, with pride. What, what I'm seeing is a bunch of people throwing dice, shouting at each other, playing a fundamentally interactive conflict game and how nice it is. You know, there's always going to be a, a flavor of the, of the year, how nice it is for that moment to have the flavor be a whole type of game that I really care about. Yeah. And, and I think that, yeah, that, that, that's how I approach that kind of stuff. Yeah, you you set a war game in a petting zoo, and suddenly everybody was willing to play it. Yeah, it, it wasn't, yeah, exactly. I mean, who, who knew? Who knew? Um, yeah, but but it is it, 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 there's a, there's a bit of a, a, a funny push and pull, and it's created this like really virtual uh, virtuous circle where I like I love talking to Gene about this stuff. He's always say like Gene, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude. GMT is so important to me, and he's like, we'll know that like w- like th- that it comes right back to us too, and so we're we're both helping each other. Um, and and it um there's such a f- a feel, and I think that is that is actually very different. I I find this, this is a very this is one of the things I love about um about the historical gaming space is that there's 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 a real sense that the water level is going to bring all the boats up um because once if someone spends a lot of time with root uh yeah they're going to pick up a distant plane and what's more they're going to like it they're probably going to have a better experience with it than if they had just picked it up randomly yeah yeah uh which is great yeah so we want we want more of that i i have a I have a funny relationship with a distant plane and some of the some of the listeners have heard this before, but I always joke that I claim like nine percent of the credit for the fact that a distant plane even exists. Volco met met Brian Train when I booked the two of them onto the same panel at Connections in 2010 or 2000. Oh, that's great. At the National Defense University. Joe Miranda and I were were panel co-chairs for a panel that year and i brought in volko and brian he brought roger mason in but that was when volko and brian met each other now look they were going to meet each other sooner or later and a distant plane was going to happen sooner or later but i I always joke that you know the fact that i threw the two of them on a panel together is yeah um it's just the the, i think you're fundamentally right in that largely across the wargaming industry um there's a lot of there's, there's probably more cooperation than competition, um, especially amongst uh, a lot of the freelancers and and the designers, the artists, and the the content folks, and a lot of the players. Um, that, that there's there's a lot of cooperation, a lot more than competition. I think there's there's going to be some competition at the the business end of some of those companies sure. because they're going after the same dollars from the same people. Yep. Largely, um, there are a couple of personality conflicts out there. Um, right. there, there, are, there are two well-known publishers that don't like each other at all. And and Jim remembers the year they were both at Origins, and we joked about putting them across the aisle from each other so we could set up a popcorn booth down at the end cap. It's just make all of our money back selling, selling popcorn and renting bleachers to watch these guys. I, I think you're largely correct. I mean, things have been pretty conge- – I mean, Jim started it- – it's funny you talk about sort of how things shifted during the pandemic to a lot of the online playing. Jim started Saturday Night Fights. What was it? It, it was eight months before the pandemic. Jim, we're, the we are we are now well into our fourth year. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was the summer before the pandemic when they started with Saturday Night Fights, playing online with Tabletop Simulator, um, and and so you know, when the pandemic hit, we just all kind of shrugged and said, all right, we're going to keep doing this because it already works. When the pandemic hit and all the conventions got shut down, um, you know, we had no idea what we were doing, but we pulled a virtual convention together that summer for the Dragoons. And then Harold's calling me up going, okay, how did you do that? I'm like, all right, let's get on a conference call and let's talk about it. And then that fall, SD Hiscon did a virtual one. Uh, it's one of those cases where there's a lot of cooperation amongst the group. And, and I think you're right. I think it's a lot more congenial than, than some of the other hobby spaces. 
Here comes the tenth season of the Armchair Dragoons podcast, mentioned in dispatches. Let's thank all of our Patreon supporters who pledged at the top level. A huge thank you to Stagger Wing, Patrick Garrity, Fred and his dog, Mike Quigley, Joseph Nor, Hethwell War Games, Robert, Patrick Mullen, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell and Trab Corey for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchairdragoons. All that said, we're now 50-odd minutes into this podcast, and we have yet, other than a passing mention, to bring up Zucker's Napoleonic Games, which was like the whole reason we dragged okay. you into this. Well, let's, all right, so we're in the Zucker zone. Only Zucker from here on out. All right, Zucker. Oh, so, uh, oh sweet. Wait, I, got, I, I have a hat for that. Give me a sec. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I figured I'm Jim expecting had, your avatar uh, to change. Yeah, that's 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 the hat. Um, of Jim's seven questions, I figured nine of them were about Napoleonic War games. Well, they, well, yeah, and Brent and I both saw it pretty much. I think at the same time when you posted, Cole about sure sort of entering into this gestalt with uh, with Kevin's work. Um, I I have adored Napoleon's Last Battles is my favorite game, bar none. Awesome. Um, I will I will play it forever. I have four copies of it, including the designer edition. I uh, I, I can't tell you how close I came to buy, buying Gary Gygax's copy when it came up. Um, you know that's yeah. just why because I don't know because it was Gary's copy. Um, does John still have it? Yeah, he does. I look at it every now and again, and my finger hovers over the buy button. <laughs> for, for folks that don't know, the Don to whom we are referring is the guy that runs Enterprise Games out in Indianapolis. That's the the mail order secondhand war game place. Got a ton of fantastic stuff, uh, but they're also very nice people. They are the official GMT rep at Origins every year, mm-hmm. and they are a major supporter of our war game space. They they help broker the support that GMT provides to us, uh, but they also tie in a lot of our stuff, and we end up sending a lot of our players over to their booth to buy games after we're done yep 100 so I, I i guess i'll start here and say obviously you had some experience of the zuckerverse before this more most recent journey when did you first start bumping into that stuff so let's see um Mm, let me think. Uh, okay, so there's there's a funny. Uh, I'm trying to think about the the, be- the beginning of it because I had played w- when I was in. Okay, when I when I when I got right when I was about to leave to Texas, I was I worked as a social worker very briefly um, when I before graduate school, and I had started playing war games again then and was playing. I learned ASL and was just sort of like thinking about kind of the heavier hex encounter games and and had 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 feelings about them. So ASL, I mean, again, we're in the Zuckerverse talking about Zucker, but um, advanced squad leader, uh, it bothered me. I really enjoy it, but it bothered me because I felt like I was playing a movie and I wasn't actually playing like a simulation, which is funny to say of ASL, which gets it gets um, you know flack for being so simulationist. But I'm like, no, it, it the way the way the eye of command floats around that map is like we might as well be we might, we might as well be in a comic book. Um, and so because I, you know, I just sort of Google like, all right, command control. And I started finding that a lot of the games that are really dealing with questions of command and control, well, they're 19th century war games or they're war games about the 19th century, which makes perfect sense, of course. And I happened to, at a Gen Con auction, buy a copy of, is it called? Struggle of Nations. That's it. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. that's where you start. Okay. Well, I remember, I remember. <laughs> I've heard I've heard about this sucker guy. Here's <laughs> and I remember opening it up and just looking at those 
tiny hexes, those hexes, the size of watch batteries. Yeah. Uh Um, and thinking, Jesus Christ, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> um, and, and, and it, you know, like like everyone who who has ever owned that game, I never played it. Um, but but I did I did read the rules, and yeah. I was very intrigued by what was going on, and that led me to get a copy of Napoleon at Bay, the old Avalon Hill one with the very sure. blue cover, uh, which I kind of liked. I know people hate that cover, but it's so insane that I kind of like it. I, I've come all the way back around on it. Um, and uh, and I and I played that and was very struck by it. And and again, I was I don't think I was I was really I don't think I was serious about my engagement with it. And by which I mean I made a lot of rules mistakes and I didn't really care because I was mostly like soloing it. And then I, I taught it to to a friend of mine in Austin and we like kind of played around in it. But we weren't we weren't being like rigorous uh, about it. But but I was like okay, there there's 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 something here. And then I kind of unplugged from Zucker's work and I, I did I experimented with some Napoleonic games. Um, the the play by mail game Flight of the Eagles, which I'm sure you know about, mm-hmm. um, I, I I adored theoretically. It was one of those like I'm uh, running a game now, so careful. Oh no, oh no, <laughs> oh no, no, no! I've, my, my dance card is so full. Uh, but but um, it, but it was one like I, I read the rules and was completely taken with it. And then actually that that kind of segued me into like the world of naval war games and i was playing a lot of close action and really getting yeah. into because because i mean that's that's the command and control stuff we used to play wooden ships and iron men and every turn in the signal phrase i would have people like put a little post-it on a pencil and like raise their little flags and you only uh, had you only had three seconds to read them yeah, yeah um and then get them back down because you don't you know we, we wanted the we wanted the fog the fog of war but i but i, I had known that zucker um you know i i had followed his his, his career like from a distance and um, and I knew that, like, you know, he had some health issues and then went into like a healing practice. And I, and I remember thinking like, well, I would love to explore his campaign games at some point. And then when he came back in, in the kind of like mid aughts, uh, he was doing the Library of Napoleonic Battles or, mm-hmm. or the entries that would become the Library of Napoleonic Battles. I don't know if they were called that initially. No, they were, he, did, yeah. he did like four lost battles. Right. right. Um, and I remember looking at them and saying, like, I don't really care about the tactical stuff. It's just uh, as a matter of personal preference. Mm-hmm. So I ignored it. But I. I signed up to the dang newsletter. And so of course every month I'm getting a newsletter that's telling me about, you know, which volumes coming out. And we're thinking like, my God, why don't like do the tactic, do the, do the, do the campaign series. Give me, give me the one X and the two X and the five X. Like I don't want these tactical games. Um, and then I happened to, um, I happened to get invited to do this kind of like war gaming book club where you know, every couple of months they pick a new system and, uh, and they had invited me on to just talk about like root and coin games. And we had a good time. And then they said, you know, if you want to stick around, you're welcome to stick around. And I said, okay, well, what are you, what are you playing next? And they said, well, well we're going to do the Zucker's library. And they said they, they want to approach it from the perspective of Jim Dunnigan's uh, Napoleon at Waterloo. Sure. And then four lost, and then uh, Napoleon's last battles, and then do the library and understand the evolution of this kind of like system, nice. uh, which was lovely. So I, I played Napoleon at Waterloo, which I thought was it's fine. I mean, it, it, it's it's like it's one of those things that is it's so remarkable, but but it's something I'd never play um, yep. uh, in the context of the time. And then I, I had actually I had played some of Napoleon's last battles many years ago, which I which I, I liked a lot quite a bit. Um, and, and and so I was kind of going through, and I was like, "Oh, this, this is actually this is very interesting." Because I've, I've had an academic interest in these hex encounter Napoleonic games for a while, but because I don't, I'm not interested in the scale. I never really got that deep into it. And then I, so I was after I, I played Last Battles, I was like, "Well, I don't even know if I'm going to play the uh, the library games. Maybe I'll just read the rules." And I read the rules, and I was so struck by them. 
And part of it is the pleasure of encountering a really mature wargaming system that it, you could just tell that every single rule has just been hammered, right? There's like not a, there's like not a weird knob. I mean, there are some weird knobs. We can, we can get into that. Um, but like, you know, every, just every element is something that it, what was talked about. And so I, you know, I, I messaged my brother and said, you know, Drew, I'm learning these weird war games. You want to learn them with me? And he said, sure. So we, we went on and, and we started playing the kind of intro uh, scenario in, La, La Patrie, mm-hmm. and uh, where, where the, the 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 coalition has to defend this little village, and they just get completely overrun. Um, but as we were playing it, we would run into like a, a rules question, and then we would say, "Well, what does the model like suggest should happen?" And then we we would like, "Well, let's just do that." And then we we check the rules later and be like, "Oh, well, that is actually what what the how the rules work." <laughs> uh, and and we just kept hitting these moments where it felt so resonant with the period and we we just kept playing them and so suddenly we were like going through all the scenarios in napoleon invades spain and like we're we're playing the brienne la rothier campaign and drew and i are in the middle of the big la patrie campaign and i'm like probably going to start a game of four lost battles pretty soon and i have just been it just swallowed me whole and it's it's the the elegance of the system i think is really remarkable and 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 this is where I'm going to find, I bet I'm going to start getting myself into trouble. And I don't know if I'll get myself into trouble with this group, but I'm, I've already gotten myself in trouble with other groups, which is the clarity of the, of the simulation at a level of scale, I think is really remarkable because you don't have full control. And that means sometimes people don't move when you want them to move. And this to me is the the best and most brilliant thing about the system. And so when I read the little optional rule that says, well, if your guy is this far away, he can attack if you want. I'm like, no, absolutely not. I will never play with that optional rule. Because, because the, the system is telling me they could be lost in a cornfield or their maps are bad. Like, to, it, it, And I would be more comfortable with a rule that said there's an equal chance of them moving backwards as forwards. And so it's better just for, you know, if we cancel those things out, you know, we give the absolute value of that as zero and we'll just say they sit still on the map. Like I'm, I'm more comfortable with, with, with that. But yeah, so it's been kind of a long, a long, a whole long chain. And then actually the one thing I didn't mention here, which is the other game that I can't believe I forgot, I forgot about, but when I was in Texas, I, I played um, the, the Seven Days, which is the 1809 campaign. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I liked that game a lot. And then what, what blew my mind is I had kind of forgotten about that game. And I had this moment where I was like, I'm going to go back and reread those rules. And I was like, oh my God, they're the same rules, basically. And it's, it's something um, so beautiful about the design design of his games that the same rule set with almost no modifications works so well at two different scales. Yes. As as you bring up 1809, you're singing Jim's song. Yeah, I get I get a little I get a little verklempt. Go on, but do go on. No, but do go on my I just miss it. It's just it it like I think it, it points to and I, I don't want to like I, I'm 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 out of my I'm not a military historian, but it it Zucker to me is suggesting something about the fractal logic of conflict in this period. Mm-hmm. That the same dynamics you see happening at the 500 yard hex are happening at the mile hex, and it is—it's just so beautiful. And so, and it, 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 it just—it's—it's it's beautiful the way like um, like a piece of music can be beautiful, where you, it's this like essential truth of a thing is being revealed. And one of the the projects that, that Drew and I are now involved in, is I, I told Drew, I was like, well. Let, let's do the Champambert big campaign from La Patrie, the two wow. giant 
yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. doing the whole thing. That's we're we're, we're a about a third map. through. Yeah, it's a giant map. Um, and and we're just you know we work on it during lunch or whatever on the weekends. And um, bless Vassal for making that possible because I'm not going to be able to set that up in my house. Um, I was I was going to say, what's that house? How long's that lunch? Like? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we just I mean we we I mean one of the things that well I'll I'll talk about that in a second, but. Uh, I said, Drew, after we, we do this campaign, I want to play Six Days of Glory and do the exact same campaign at a, at basically like a few steps back. And mm-hmm. after we do that, let's play Napoleon a bit. Because I want to just, I want to really understand the, the depth of this picture that's being presented. Because there's a thing, uh, there's an amazing thing that happens when I was reading the Seven Days, when I was reading that rule book and thinking about how the counters in that game are divisions and how, of course, in the Library of Napoleonic Battles, you might have three or four counters per division. Mm-hmm. And I just started thinking about i i I paid it i really zoomed in on the map and i looked at the map of in six days of glory and compared it to the the maps in la patrie and i said look at how it's replicating the same type of give and take the same type of movement at different scales with fewer pieces but then it's like showing that the macro trend i mean it's like conway's game of life or something um oh man okay whoa okay yeah 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 so yeah, yeah I, I just I think it was I think it's remarkable, and there to me I'm a sucker for any time I see a, a person or a group of people throw themselves at a huge project like on that that is measured in the scale of like decades and lifetimes i get i get misty eyed that's the thing that does it for me like i love the, you know it's, it's like the dwarf fortress guys right like i when, when you know they're working on Kevin, a project Kevin Zucker has not received a check for 14 million dollars so. yeah but someday man you know, I, yeah. well, it, 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 well and that's the thing it doesn't always pay off i mean this is all like you know came to the very beginning of the conversation there's a reason i brought up caro it's like the same type of work mm-hmm. and when i was looking at, 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 at when i was starting to read zucker's work and then play the games i was like oh this is an enterprise that is on such a different scale from the one i normally can appreciate and it is it's so wonderful to see it executed i mean to the level it is i mean it's amazing i've, I've got a bunch of them now and and i love uh i love opening up and exploring I'm just thinking like wow this is like just another chapter in this big book that i'm that i'm exploring uh that all said i mean we, we could talk about the, the less fun parts about the design. Um, Jim, we've had the same life. conversation of, of scale and zooming in and zooming out with David and Stennis mm-hmm. talking about the uh, our system and you know the the how many Napoleonic folks don't get it because it's zoomed farther out than they're used to. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole conversation about attrition, I, I think, and the, the, this is where what I mean about getting myself into trouble. I run to people who are like, I mean, this is the whole thing about the was it the Shumter, the Sumter Shumter rules. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's, yeah, there's like the alternate set which I read and I thought, well, these seem fine, but like I'm I'm not really interested in playing with them because they seem like they want a, a game at like the hexasim level and not well, and not, I, not I, what's I, being. Yeah, what, what gives people the itch more than anything, and this certainly includes luminaries like Kev Sharp and smart guys. I mean, these are not, yeah. these are guys who know a lot about games. They don't like the bloodlessness of the combat. Sure. And they don't quite understand what Kev is doing at that level. I think the first thing, and I, I it, what Kev Zucker is doing yeah, at sure. that level, I, I think your point about the fractal nature of it is absolutely critical. Because if you play them in time, what I'm saying is if you start playing with La Patrie and you make your way forward in time, you will watch armies become increasingly more difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. You will see Napoleon and his commanders struggle with the the units that they've got to keep them under control. By the time you get to Wagram and things like that, 
the armies are simply too big for his Napoleonic structure. And you feel that, and you feel that challenge. The combat, especially because for me, it's always situated at the brigade level. I'm a huge, I love all the others. Um, I, I think I probably do agree with Bruce Garrick that Highway to the Kremlin is probably his greatest design. I, I um, just started reading it. I've got it. Yeah. In terms yeah. of in terms of what he did in encapsul, I, I I still love Napoleon's last battles more. But in terms of creating a simulation, if you will, if that's not the wrong word, of an of an impossible to simulate situation, it's a classic. Um, and when you do that and you play through that game. You go, you really do get a sense the combat becomes secondary. Mm -hmm. It's important. It's there, but it takes second place to the maneuver, to the command control, to what you said, the simple question of move you guy there. No, I'm not going to. At that scale, you got to feed your army. Well, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's keeping the plate spinning. So no, I, I, uh, hmm. That's, well, I mean, it, it runs into it, 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 it's it's this question about the role of attrition in these games, and then also, you know, do you? So, I mean, the thing that I think about from a design perspective is um, health bars in war games, right? Sure. So, at some scales, I think that there is there's a, a desire to want to measure things like, um, it, you know, morale, enthusiasm, but also just how many people you happen to have standing on that line, um, and to measure it very precisely. But when you start looking at the 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 amount of tr people who are composing a strength point you're like well like you don't what really matters is like the unit's physical position its command status and then if it's been rallied once you know if it's like broken once and, and that to me like like at that scale the attrition stuff doesn't matter because you're just not you're not you're not at the right zoom um and so i i, I think and th this is why it's very i mean i just started learning about the i think it's the rising eagles falling eagles games um which i, I have s some friends who, who really like them and i read the rules that they seem fascinating um not really at the, again not, not at the scale that i'm like super i'm thrilled by but that is is a scale that is more appropriate potentially which is about twice the level of zoom as something like like the library where yeah you you do start caring about like how many of your guys are dead um and, and I'll, I'll be interested to kind of explore more but but at the you know i, I so the this actually gets me to, to a, an adjacent point, which is the thing that I find really remarkable about these games. And th this is, so I played over the weekend. I had, I sat down and played Nemesis, which is a big plastic Kickstarter-y game uh, that is basically like Alien, but a board game. And it was, it was, I had a good time. I had a good time. It was fun. But there were more phases in that game than in the Library of Napoleonic Battles. And, and, and more damning still, it took longer to resolve a turn. It was, there was just this like heaviness to the design. And what I'm finding really remarkable about the library is that when Drew and I sit down to play it over lunch, we'll knock out two turns in an hour or three sometimes um, because we, we just play quickly, you know, and, and we're not, we're not trying to be perfect. We're, we're not trying to say, well, what's the optimal move? We're saying, look, this is a casual game. We we're much more interested in the experience, you know, the whiff of grape shot. So let's make some, maybe our moves are suboptimal, but let, let's play a little, a little quickly. And when you play at that speed, the whole, I mean, what, what you were saying about the armies like becoming scattered, you like see it. And I could see if people were really very carefully like trying to play them as if they were chess matches where they're really analyzing every position and move that it would feel like i am making moves that are five percent 
better than your moves, I should be getting 5% more. And it's like, no, you, you make different kinds of gambles and you made a maneuver, maybe it didn't work. You got to swing a little bit bigger. And then the, then the actual, like all the rules kind of fall away and the actual design is so clean. Despite the fact that it has, um, I'll just say, like one of the worst UX designs I've ever seen. <laughs> it's cr like it's well, insane. I mean, and, and I get, well, and I get that it's, it's, there are it's, reasons it's, for why it's. Well, I mean, but it also hasn't. I mean, it, honestly, how much has it evolved since Napoleon's last battles? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, I, I, yeah. It, it, it is it is small stuff like the um the order of battles used to set up i'm like i can't handle these anymore I oh, just, no. Really, oh no i just no, no, i just no, no, desperately like I, it, it, it's been a long time i mean I, before i started designing games i um i did a lot of like redraws mm -hmm. and I, I sometimes i'll get an itch where i'm like oh i just want to redo all these tables to make them clear and i have I, it's been a while since i felt that itch but drew and i were, were working on um we, we were playing one of the vassal mods that was like one of the earlier ones. I think actually Napoleon invades Spain. The vassal module is an early version of what many of the other vassal modules that have been branched off of it. And it's just kind of like hard to use because the tables are weirdly labeled and in the wrong order and all these like very small things that people don't care about. Um, but I had this moment where I was like, yeah, like the, uh, the demoralization track, like why are there so, I mean, he's trying to save paper. I get it. But like there are other ways, it's, it's, it's coming at a cost. And so part of me wants to like, ask myself what a a ui overhaul would look like that isn't trying to like make things look pretty because i actually think they're beautiful i mean they're gorgeous games they have a, some of the best information design in wargaming um but i do think that yeah, some I mean, of the supplementary stuff could be clean yeah no, no no i mean look i i will i will go a long long way but i won't defend those tables i won't and and i do wonder and i've never you know i've had a few chats with him with with kevin Tucker online but I've never engaged him in anything approaching the level of conversation we're even having tonight. But I would love to know. It's like when he did those things for SPI, they figured out a different way to do it. Yeah. And I realized they were of their time, but there's a reinforcement track right along the side of the map. Yes. No, when, when I think when, when I compared the days series, like, uh, you know, I, the map for six days of glory is very hard to read. It's, it's beautiful, but it is difficult to decipher. But the UI for it is great. It's right along the side of the board, right where you, you kind of exactly. It. Well, and well, even the map itself, right? It's that middle range. It's that late SPI, early TSR. You know, what the heck is that color palette? They're nothing approaching how lovely those maps are now because they're really lovely now. No, I, I think it's the I think the the maps. And I, I can't remember the the artist that, that does them all, but um, they are my favorite hex encounter maps. I, they're gorgeous, and and they reward study. And the thing is. And I will always say this about Kevin Sucker. If there's a rise somewhere, if there's a ditch somewhere, it's there. Mm -hmm. And he has a reason for, th or it was there. And he has a reason for thinking it was. Yeah. You know, they're, they're incredibly well thought out. It's, it, it, I've, you know, you've really got me thinking about it in a whole different way because you're right. It is the result of what? 50 years now? Approaching? Approaching 50 years polishing one thing. Well, and, and, and this actually, it, it gets back to a point I wanted to make earlier, which is when I was first, you know, when I was following Zucker's work from a distance and I was kind of bummed out by all these tactical games he was working on because I didn't want that. I wanted more big campaign games. 
I want more. I want to feed my troops harder, right? Like I, I just love, I love the, those kind of puzzles. Um, and but now I'm kind of approaching them with this new angle, which says, here's the person who has spent the majority of their life thinking about this period of conflict and how the battles were decided. And this person says, this is the scale. This is the proper scale. And like the, the, the interview that I like want to see with Zucker or, you know, the piece by him I want to read is like the justification for the scale, because he could have spent this, this portion of his career going back and republishing all of his campaign games and cleaning them up and making them very beautiful or doing that with the day series, which I adore and which many people love, love the day's games. But he said, no, no, no. He wants to do these 525 yard hex games and what what i think the answer is is that this is the best scale to do the approach to battle i think because mm -hmm. we, 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 and, and there have been a few scenarios i mean the the the, the game that i love when I, if i have to teach someone how to how to play the game the scenario i like using is vimero Okay. Because there's it's it, it's hard for the French, but it, it's hard for both sides if you don't really know what you're doing. And it's very clear. Like I always play the approach to battle, which just starts like three or four turns. So it's not even that much longer. It just starts three or four turns earlier. And the approach to battle is great because you give a new player Judo and you say, okay, you're trying to take Vimero. Here's how you're going to get your victory points. You could take the supply points. You could try to demoralize the army. But like, really, it's this is a hard battle to win unless you take Vimero. And so how are you going to do that? And you just like, you don't even put pieces on the board. You just like talk about the map. And you're, and pretty soon you get like, okay, there's kind of like two ways to do it. But maybe there's a third way. And then then it starts opening up like, well, you've got a little bit of time. And there's, you know, there's some of these unknowns come into play. And it's, it's that conversation about the approach, the like night before battle where everyone's got the maps out and you're just like, talking about the battle in theory mm -hmm. that i think that this scale really excels at um and that kind of disappears when you have to spend all your time worrying about if your units are going to form squares at the proper moment well i uh some years ago i gave a presentation at the war college sponsored by the armchair dragoons at origins and the presentation was how big for bony um which was basically what what's the proper scale if such a thing there be for depicting Napoleonic conflict on the tabletop or on a, you know, using a, a standard war game. And I came down to the answer. I guess it's unsurprising and who knows it maybe it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it was the brigade level. I, I think at that point, you get to the point where an actual Napoleonic commander would have thought. Uh, and, and the idea that the idea that it was, it was originally Richard Bodley Scott in the great De, De Bellis Antiquitatis who taught us. He said, look, there is no universe in which Alexander the Great was looking down the field and going, wait a minute, how many of those Peltasts just died? <laughs> I didn't, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. And it's no different in the Napoleonic battlefield. You know, casualty sheets were for the next day. Yeah. And, and that whole yeah. process and that whole thing. <laughs> That's, wow. And there's, I mean, I think that like it, it I mean, and this goes back to Chandler, um, mm. you know, Chandler talks about how, if you're trying to understand, like Napoleon becomes this really convenient figure because you, you see this like level of excellence at the like tactical, grand tactical, operational and strategic. And of course it's not, it's not even across all of those, but if you want to appreciate someone like Napoleon, you have to find like the right register to appreciate him. Yes. 
and it ends up being something like the, the brigade level, right? Or or something like the operational level. Both two areas where, you know, I think he he clearly displays genius. And or or, you know, to a more recent example is like Ron Chernow's biography of Grant, where that book begins by saying, like, you know, his argument is that Grant's the greatest US general. And it's because he's the only general who excels at all the different essentially scales. Um, and which is interesting, it's an interesting claim, but it also the reason why outside of one might disagree or agree with that claim, but where the claim is useful is because it acts, it, it forces us to ask the question, what is the battlefield look like inside the, the principal actor's head? And then how yes. do you actually like cr- create that? And this is, you know, whenever, when I'm ever talking about historical games, I always say that, you know, historical games in some respects are very easy because you're always just a- answering two questions. And the first question is, who are the actors? And the second question is, what are they worried about? And everything else comes out of that. Um, and I feel like where historic, you know, where games of any type go astray for me personally is when I feel like those questions stop being asked as as rigorously. And this is how you get to, to something like Squad Leader. And I, I want someone, I want someone of your ability to take a look at that question in the future. Mark that down. I know you have nothing <laughs> else to do. Yeah, I'm very. <laughs> you know, it's it it to me that that question that you raise, what does the headspace of the commander look like, is insufficiently explored. Um, and maybe I'm being unfair, but I I've played enough war games to know Napoleonic and otherwise that don't try, you know, you know, for example, Simmons's games, they actually took a serious shot at it. Right. Yes. I think so. You know, Rachel's work. If you tried that, you're going to end up scaring off a lot of the players that, that are used to the God's eye view and Mm -hmm. and anything with that, that hampers that they're going to see as somehow penalizing the players or, or, you know, hamstringing the, the players for not being able to do everything they want to do while simultaneously ignoring how a historical that is that you just can't do everything you want to do so i mean it like my my favorite design about the second world war uh, by far is uh Craig Basink's Triumph and Tragedy. I adore mm. it. And the reason I adore it is because it, um, all World War II games, even the ones that are, that, that can get wild, they're all so, um, oh, they're like in an apologetic tradition. I don't know how else to describe it. They, 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 they treat the war like a, like a Shakespearean play, like a passion play or something that they're going to like, we have, we're going to go through the, the stations of the cross as we fight, you know, as we, <laughs> like, okay, genuflect before D-Day. Let's fight, like, let's fight the battle of the bulge. Um, and what, what, what I love about Triumph and Tragedy is the, the people fighting World War II didn't realize they were fighting World War II. And, and in fact, it, it starts to explain that, like, nobody went, oh, hey, everybody, it's time to start a world war. It was this, like, runaway car accident, this, this you know, hundred-nation pileup. And I love the lead-up to Triumph and Tragedy because even people who have played Triumph and Tragedy dozens of times will, will find themselves saying things like, well, maybe I can just coast this to an economic victory. Maybe if ever, maybe we just, we don't need to get in this, but we don't, this is just a small thing. I'll let this slide. And it, it, it so it does a great job of, of, of putting players in the mindset that views what happened as essentially like an accident. And, yeah. and, and and I think that to me, like, and this gets into broader questions of like understanding history is you want to really understand possibility. And, and which is why I have found, I mean, my, really my, and this isn't really a critique of, of the library of Napoleonic battles at all. It's just um, the, the battle scenarios 
tend to unhappen like if you if you play the battle scenario for any particular scenario what happened historically tends to be what happens like they are you know there isn't as much game there there's still interesting puzzles and questions but the game comes alive with those approach to battle scenarios where suddenly you're like you know i'm gonna take a different gambit and actually the, the ones I, I haven't i haven't played these yet but it, the one the some of the scenarios in four lost battles have me so excited because they include two armies that are they're like in, in counter engagements where both of the armies are off board at the start yeah and so then you're asking questions about march order and position and like what what their intents are you're really engaging the game's fog of war system and again i haven't played them yet but i'm like i think this has got to be exactly where where, where the heart the, the beating heart of the whole system is um because even i've just started using some of the alternate reinforcements and getting a little bit into the mode cards i haven't done the other cards just the modes but okay. like that is enough noise that i'm it's exhilarating to like not know what the reinforcement schedule is mm -hmm. because it's just yeah. taking me a lot closer and in, in the dream this is why i was so interested in the flight of the eagles um the 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 essential problem especially these nice century war games is the problem of the double blind game mm -hmm. um and uh board games are just bad at it uh it's it, it, i think it, it requires so much sort of design superstructure to get, to get to to work right. I mean, y'all know I, you. You, I, have you need to come hang out with us sometime. You 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 did you did notice my my avatars from Rice Fits, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Just saying, just, just yeah. saying. I'm, I'm sympathetic to your concerns. Well, <laughs> we, do, we do double blind, we do semi blind, we do multi blind. If you can blind it, we've blinded it. <laughs> well, and, and I go, go ahead, Frank. I, I was going to say your your comment about the approach march. I think is is absolutely spot on, and it's something that not near enough war gamers really appreciate. And it's it's almost I, I get that you've got a bit of a war gaming background in in your personal life, but the vast majority of war gamers aren't going to know you as a war game designer. They're going to know yeah, you sure. as you know, you know, again, the, the war in the petting zoo, but still the the approach march or lack thereof is the reason that I won't. Uh, I'm not a big fan of most Civil War games. I will never touch a Gettysburg game. I won't. The, 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 the way the Gettysburg games are set up with the exact order of battle that was present at the fight are 1000% boring and 1000% predetermined. The, the, mm. the, the folks that showed up on the battlefield on July 1st, that's it. Like the Confederates are going to lose. They, they don't have the terrain. They don't have the people it's done. And, and you can, you can claim that they kind of sort of won the game if they exceed their historical outcome. Right, right. Got it. But how many Gettysburg games actually include <laughs> Deb Stewart's cavalry that, you know, were like fucking off 50 miles away looking for shoes instead of like having them as an option at the battle. How many Gettysburg games give you the option to fight Gettysburg, not at Gettysburg, that this collision between two accidental armies happened 50 miles down the road instead of at Gettysburg itself. And, and that approach march that you're talking about gives you the opportunity to figure that out. Whereas, you know, the, most of those games that you open it up, you, you already know what's going to happen. Like as soon as you open the box, you know what's going to happen. There's a couple of really gorgeous Gettysburg games out there. A couple of them recently released by designers who are friends of mine. I ain't going anywhere near them and I'm not recommending anybody else do it because they're they're on rails. There's nothing to them. Well, and, and even, even Simmons is- rice cake of like, you know, military gaming. It's just, it's empty calories. Well, and this is a this is a place where I I adore Rachel Simmons's work. I mean, Napoleon Napoleon's Triumph is a game I've played a lot. I love Bonaparte at Marengo, uh, which I prefer to Napoleon's Triumph just because it is so snappy and so easy to play. Yeah. Um, 
Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I think I've probably played it 10 times more and I and I, I like both of them. But but I, I do think that they both fall slightly into into, into scale traps where with, with Napoleon's Triumph and Bonaparte Marengo, but especially Napoleon's Triumph, it does kind of like boil the game down to like a few essential gambits. But you kind of know what those gambits are going in. And what happens when you take that zoom out? In scale, you're like, well, now I can kind of decide what my big gambits are going to be, and and that to me, that is really taking me like right to the right to the field. Um, and it, you know, yeah, and and I and I can, I mean, I don't know. There there are there are all types of folks in, in this hobby, and um, it, it's just the the thing that most excites me about it is that 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 sense of possibility, like the the, the chaos of the moment. I and mean, this is why I mean one of my favorite. And this is a game I've talked about a lot in other other things, but um, I love uh, I love Mark McLaughlin's The Napoleonic Wars, which is oh, a yeah. is an utter nonsense piece of design, but it's just wonderful mm-hmm. because to me it captures the spirit of the age. Like you. Really Really, you go into that game not knowing when it's going to end, not knowing, you know, what's going to, you, you throw the giant bucket of dice and maybe you get an Austerlitz and maybe you get a Wagram or maybe you get a Leipzig and you just, <laughs> you just have to deal. And, and it like, it has, there's a speed to it, but, but the thing that, that it does really well, I think is the romantic possibility that, that for, for the people guiding these nations at this time, suddenly something was unhinged and it felt like kind of anything was possible. Mm-hmm. And that game captures it so well in a way that a lot of other napoleonic war games are trapped in what i've come to recognize as the kind of like specter of world war ii and this is something i just read the the andrew roberts biography of napoleon mm-hmm. and it, it, he has a, there's a brilliant introduction where he just talks about how basically the mid-20th century kind of screwed up our understanding of the 19th and 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 when I was reading that, I, I instantly just thought about all of these these war games I've played that are just feel like Axis and Allies with uh, with Shakos, um, <laughs> where where you, you've got a giant glob of French units in the middle of the map, and they kind of push out on all the sides, and oh, they kind of run out of supplies, and they get you know you know pushed back in, um, and how that that doesn't capture the uncertainty of it all, right? Um, and I think that the the, 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 the the McLaughlin does a really good job of that at a at a macro scale, and and Zucker does a great job at the just at the absolute ground level and, and as you well know there are people who hate that game for them. oh i know just yeah. and i, I mean, and look i've landed swedes in ireland i've seen the look on their this faces. is it this is it it, it, it is <laughs> my, my my personal favorite is the the russo the russo french alliance yeah it's the best yeah you, it's you, the new you, you can you can pull off you can yeah the you can pull off invasion the, of york yeah you know the you could pull off the russo french alliance no that's that that that's right no and i for me, you know, offering the the elevator pitch for Flight of the Eagle, because we're on our third, actually, now. We're doing Friedland right now, 1807. Okay. And we're, oh, what about six months I, in, I think. Okay, I was about to ask how long this was. Cole probably yeah. isn't aware of it. Jim has run some of these play-by-email email Kriegspiels that have lasted longer than some marriages. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not wrong. That, no, no, you're not. And, and we're not talking Hollywood marriages either. Yeah, mine is, <laughs> mine is, mine is good despite all that stuff. But there it is, uh, as is yours. But no, the um, the the thing that I love about it, probably more than anything else, is that sense of, all right, I know roughly where they are. I think I know where my guys are. I know what the limits of their capacity to move is. How will I persuade them to get to the point where I need them as quickly as possible? Mm-hmm. 
And when you get to let that play out over, as is the case now, a map of Central Europe that basically encompasses Poland, East Prussia, and a little bit of, well, no, the Neiman Rivers, the Eastern Gap. So you know, when you've got that much territory to play around, um, it's, it's, it is. It, well, to me, and I'm the umpire, so I don't even I don't even get the wonder of it. I just get to watch them like Gomez Adams watching his trains. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I get to watch that. It is to I think to borrow your term, exhilarating. It's very cool. Yeah, I, and I'll it, tell you it, what, Zach's going to have a devil of a time with the show notes for this one. <laughs> all of the obscure references that we are going to end up making on this on this episode. Very very right. proud of these things. The, the Gomez Adams one. That's that's a brand new one for any of our podcasts. I mean, I, <laughs> Bravo, Jim. It really bring new media into the war game space. Guys, we are uh, we're well past the hour and a half that I'd asked y'all to commit to uh, to tonight's episode. It's not hard to get Jim to just keep going on Napoleonic topics. I, I my at certain point, Streamyard's going to run out of recording space if we let Jim just keep going. Yeah, um, I thought we were going to spend so much time talking about the artillery bombardment table, but we, we, we can save that. <laughs> And, oh and, man, I got notes. I got notes. <laughs> so, and 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 probably got them in more than one language. So. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cole, this has been fascinating. No, seriously, thank you very much for joining us and for you know sticking around an extra couple of minutes. Um, and and we are absolutely gonna pester you to come back and join us again on another episode down the line. Um, uh, because this is this is great. And if you make it to Origins this year, um, uh, I'm happy to buy a beer and uh and let's just sit down and bs over some more games at some point that sounds great i really appreciate being on the show it's so you know i don't i don't get to do this very often so i i have a blast uh, yeah we uh we just need to peer pressure jim into showing up at origins there you go next year jim maybe I no well it all depends what happens i i not even kidding a little when i say it all depends entirely what happens in ukraine because i am devil determined to get to friedland that's my next stop so yeah so uh yeah let's let's get a peace treaty signed in a hurry folks yeah there you go yeah because jim needs to travel so solve world's problems for that reason there you go yes yes exactly um jim what's the uh by the time people are listening to this tabletop said you know whatever you're doing this week will be in the rearview mirror but what are the next couple of things we've got lined up on saturday night fights or wednesday night warfare uh what we are working through speaking of double blind we're playing Artie conlove's spearhead a 1944 June double blind game, three players on a side. And it's turd. Uh, you, you wonder why you love double blind. I just had an entire infantry company walk on top of another one, uh, leaving myself and David Plumhouse to sort that out. That was great. Uh, we are, we are continuing to be play testers for uh, Jervis Johnson's valor and fortitude. Uh, they're in a beta 2.1 and we're going to be play testing that next couple of Wednesdays. And we're firing up the uh, next uh, chain of command pint-sized campaign. This time Kampfgruppe von Luck. <laughs> Talk about genuflecting. <laughs> I am stealing that call. I'm going to have to send you a dollar every time I do it. Uh, it genuflecting. <laughs> At the, uh, of the cross. at the stations <laughs> of the cross, cross. genuflecting at the stations of the cross of World War II. We are deep in the heart. We are June 6th, 1944, just a little bit west of Cannes as the 6th Airborne goes up against Kampfgruppe von Lock. So uh, that's that's what's coming up soon online. All right. And uh, and so, Cole, you've given us a, a heads up on what some of the games coming um, are going to be. I know you can't give away any like super surprise releases <laughs> at the uh, at any of the conventions. So I'm, I'm not unless they're answer. Napoleonic, in which case I insist. 
No, the, the only the only plug I've got is that uh, if you're interested in any of the historical work, uh, you should do yourself a favor and join the Whirly Gig and Friends Discord. Um, I can provide a link to y'all. It is a great, great place to meet up for historical games of all types, um, from the Hex Encounter stuff to, to the lighter, more Euro-y stuff. And it's also the place where Drew and I do a lot of our development kind of out in the public. So, you know, gotcha. everything that I've announced so far, none of it surprises the folks who hang around that Discord. Gotcha. So, yeah, once, once Cole gets that link over to us we will link it to this show um don't forget for a lot of what jim does um you can toss your hat in the ring either in our forums or in our discord jim does a lot of the audio through his own other separate discord but but he's happy to take signups or people that are interested in participating from our discord from youtube comments from all over the place so uh he's he's rounded up quite a collection of folks that, that regularly join him for gaming and sooner or later we're going to get at least one of these dudes branch off and start like the franchise of uh you know the one one of the side franchises for Saturday night fights and we'll have multiple games running on Saturday nights um probably pump house is your best bet huh i would think so or or maybe brooks brooks might could do it oh yeah so we just we got to lean on these guys to to get it ramped up um Audience, thank you very much for joining us on this uh, on this great discussion. Um, and uh, you know, again, sorry we got to cut it off here at some point because the editor guy uh, has to has to go back through all of this and uh, and cut out himself saying um so many times. Uh, Cole, welcome back anytime. Jim, you're coming back later this season anyway because it's already on the calendar. And uh, an audience, please join us again next week for another episode of Mentioned in Dispatches.